The following content contains some explicit language that might not be suitable for children or Mormons. It's Thursday, April 27th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And the man who made America what it is today is no more. Former American talk show host and politician Jerry Springer has died. This is according to multiple reports. Springer is best known for hosting the controversial Jerry Springer show from 1991 to 2018. It was known for its outlandish guests and regular physical fights on set. The footage playing under that sober tribute was a Springer show titled You Slept With My Stripper Sister. They could have gone with other shows like I Cut Off My Manhood or I Married a Horse. Over on NBC, they used the same phrase in describing Jerry Springer. Breaking news from the entertainment world. NBC News has learned the controversial talk show host Jerry Springer has died at the age of 79. But was he controversial? I think we all had the same exact thoughts about Jerry Springer. He was an outrageous, lowbrow P.T. Barnum showing up sideshow fodder in order to make us all feel superior. We were all kind of delighted by the guy and happy the show existed. America probably would have gone on its descent even without him. I mean, if the man who married a horse ever felt down, he could say, well, did I cut off my manhood? Nay. Springer was also... And this should be the first line in an obit, shouldn't he? Mayor of Cincinnati. He was once seen as one of the Democratic Party's most promising politicians. Then he paid a prostitute with a check. Eventually, he got into the far more lucrative business of serving up an MRI of America's soul five days a week in syndication. Jerry Springer was 79. He is survived by a daughter, Katie, the only time the baby was his. On the show today, a man is gunned down by police in New York City for holding a knife in his own kitchen. But there may be more to the story than that. In fact, I did the story. I can tell you, there is more to the story than that. But first, five members of the Proud Boys have been on trial facing multiple criminal counts, including seditious conspiracy for their actions on January 6th. Roger Parloff, senior editor of Lawfare, has been covering the trial for all of its 62 days. He joins us to talk about the trial and what effect this might have on a possible prosecution of Donald Trump. Roger Parloff, up next. The testimony is completed. The closing statements have been made. The jurors are now to decide the fate of five defendants who are proud boys. After a 14-week trial, five members of the far-right extremist group face judgment. Roger Parloff, senior editor at Lawfare, has been there for all of the testimony, and he joins me now. Hello, Roger. Thanks for coming on The Gist. Thank you for having me. So hundreds of people stormed the Capitol on January 6th. How important were these individuals to that effort? They were actually pretty crucial. They were sort of, in their own words, uh, the tip of the spear. They were on the front lines at four crucial breaches. The initial breach, which uh, was the barricade at the Peace Circle, 
that's exterior. You know, it's a bike rack barrier. Uh, the second breach was a, a metal fence across the West Plaza. The third was a police line at under the scaffolding, the inaugural scaffolding, and that led to the stairs up to the Upper West Terrace, where you could begin, where where the entrances to the Capitol were, and the fourth was the actual smashing of the windows uh, just south of what's called the Senate Wing Door, and that's where the first rioters entered the building. They kicked open the door, and everybody flooded in. At all four, there were Proud Boys present, and they were crucial. And one of the Proud Boys, Dominic Pizzola, he smashed through the windows and used a riot shield. And even though he wasn't high up in the leadership, I think the testimony showed that many of the images of the most extreme acts of violence were Pizzola, Proud Boy Dominic Pizzola, um, conducting those actions. Yes, he was like exactly what you say. He was not as high as the others. Um, The theory of the case is that the leaders recruited tough guys uh, like him and he was a marine infantryman in the past and a former boxer uh, he's a pretty impressive impressive physical specimen actually and uh, yeah he he did some crucial things he wrested this riot shield away from the police and uh, then used it to smash the windows could you give us a sense of just how much internal chatter was both introduced and the government had access to? The FBI agent testified that he had looked at about 500,000 messages uh, that mostly encrypted telegram chat. And, and bear in mind, a lot of messages were deleted. Uh, there, there were explicit messages by members of the alleged conspiracy, nuke the chats scrub the chats at two points in this uh, after uh, at two points and yet uh, these are what remained now the defendants in fairness turn that against the government and say okay you looked at 500,000 chats where's the smoking gun and there isn't a chat where they say okay on January 6th we're going to storm the capitol there are certainly hints there's discussions in those directions, and there's even the top guy, uh, Enrique Tario, at two days before the event, saying, "So you want to you want to storm the Capitol," but he doesn't say that's what we're doing. Right, and we'll get to Tario in a second. But what are the most what are the most incriminating uh, statements in the chats that the government linked to the actions on that day? There's also some on Parler. But as you get closer to January 6th, uh, there is some explicit references to um, maybe the main, the main theater of operations should be out in front of the Capitol. And then some Proud Boys, not these specific defendants, but leaders talk about what would happen if a million people stormed the Capitol? What, what could they do? And another one answers nothing because they could do nothing. This is about, uh, I, I think it's January 4th, and uh, it's in, uh, in response to one of those messages that Tario on the morning of, I guess that was January 3rd, because on the morning of January 4th, Tario leaves that message. 
so you want to storm the Capitol. The other very incriminating, uh, very, uh, some are messages that occur during the event itself. Tario is not present himself. He's in Baltimore. He was arrested January 4th. He, he, he was released from jail January 5th and told he had to leave uh, D.C., went to Baltimore. The allegation is that he kept in contact electronically and so on. He was arrested for burning a BLM flag, I think. Exactly. And, um, uh, and while the riot is going on, he's putting things out on parlor like 1776, um, proud of my boys and of my country, don't fucking leave. Uh, and then uh, at 2.40 p.m. on an internal Proud Boys telegram channel, he tells the elders of the Proud Boys, which are the sort of national top people, make no mistake, we did this. When the Capitol was breached, yep. when the Proud Boys and hundreds of others were inside. Right. He's taking exactly. credit Exactly. So that is... That's a, a problem for them. Yeah, but there w- it is true. There was no plan per se. There was no operational directives. There were no diagrams of weak points or entryways. But the government argues, and you tell us what the law is, there doesn't necessarily have to be for there to be a seditious conspiracy, right? That's, that's right. And uh, uh, yeah, but... There's supposed to be a shared objective. There's supposed to be a meeting of the minds, an agreement about achieving an unlawful goal. And the evidence, uh, that's, that's where the, the nub will be. And the, and the jury instructions that the judge gave uh, were consistent with the government's theory that it can be that broad. And actually, remember... That was sort of the case with the Oath Keepers uh, earlier in in their seditious conspiracy case. There was no plan there. In fact, I would say that the evidence of a of an objective, well, the the evidence there was in some respects weaker because the Oath Keepers didn't do as much. They really played no role in the in the starting of of the breach and and so on. Here, the evidence is a little stronger than that. But it's true that that initial breach at the Peace Circle was probably, it it was spontaneous. It may have even surprised the defendants the way it came down. It's, It's a murky situation. Right. But as one of the prosecutors said in a closing statement, if I'm at a red light in my car and you pull up next to me in your car and you rev the engine and I look at you and you look at me and boom, then we race, that would count as under the law, uh, a plan, a conspiracy. We didn't know it beforehand. It just happened upon us. But once we did it and once there was that locking of eyes and revving of engines, that would uh, that's the analogy that would apply. Exactly. And they also urge the jurors that there's no specific time requirement. The conspiracy, although it's alleged in the indictment that it starts in December 19th and, and goes to January, they say, so long as a defendant joined at any time, even if not until January 6th, even if not until the barricades at the peace circle already came down, that's enough. 
So uh, as uh, now, uh, of course, there's always a possibility if somebody's convicted, maybe an appellate court will say, well, no, <laughs> but this is what we think the law is. And, and that's what the case is proceeding upon. So there are five different defendants. How important do you think it will be? How much uh, of an impediment for conviction is the fact that Enrique Terrio was not there, was not in the city? Uh, I know his defense lawyer couldn't emphasize this over uh, more than he did. So do you think that that will have a lot of sway? It's certainly important. I would say the evidence is stronger against Ethan Nordine and Joe Biggs um, because they were there they were leading the and certain statements they made um but as as we just mentioned these things that that tario said uh during the events and uh the claiming of credit and also the, the he sort of creates the chapter that uh is devoted to january 6th he's does all the planning until january 6th uh he he's in it pretty pretty deeply. Uh, but if the jury does not buy that there's a conspiracy, then he's a, he's a free man because obviously uh, he was in Baltimore. Two of the defendants took the stand, which uh, legal experts say is always a dicey move. And from what I gather from your reporting, it did not go so well for them. No. With Zach Real, it really backfired. Zach Reel is sort of a, uh, he looks younger than the others. He, he's a little callow in appearance. And he was a rung down from, say, Nordine and Biggs and Tario in the hierarchy. And so until then, there was an argument, well, maybe the Philadelphia Proud Boys, which he headed, were a little bit different. And and there he, he wasn't all over the chats. Um, but... And his lawyer kept emphasizing, you never, he never destroyed property. He never assaulted cops. He never did any violence. And then, lo and behold, he got on the stand and the government did have video of what looks for all the world like him uh, pepper spraying a police officer. And they had three different videos and the last one seems to show the pepper spray coming out of the nozzle of the pepper uh, spray canister coming right at a police officer's body-worn camera. So, uh, and of course, he did not admit it was him. But on the second day of this, his lawyer said, well, you've had overnight to think about it. Do you remember now pepper spraying police officers? And he said, I can't recall, which is a distance from absolutely not, which is how it had come out uh, the, uh, the previous day. Under the rules of discovery, doesn't the defense have to know that the prosecution has that uh, footage? Uh, well, they certainly thought so. <laughs> um, this is not a charged crime. And, and apparently the government did not know about its existence. When he took the stand, um, he finished, and then there was a long weekend. And apparently the online sleuths, you know, out there, the sedition hunters, those groups, they found initially <laughs> this footage. And then the uh, prosecutors 
uh, looked in CCTV cameras. You know, there are 515 closed-circuit television cameras around the Capitol grounds, and they caught it on CCTV, and then they eventually looked up these body-worn camera footage and found it there. So uh, it, it was not part of their case in chief. It was rebuttal, and it's not in there to show the crime. It's to show his lack of credibility. That's how it comes in. But yes, uh, Real is pretty upset. I mean, his attorney is pretty upset about this. I want to characterize your opinion of the uh, verdict of the Oath Keepers trial, where most of the top Oath Keepers were found to have been guilty of seditious conspiracy. And it wasn't so much that you had qualms about the jury's findings, but you thought that that might be vulnerable on appeal. It wasn't, uh, you know, you tell me as you answer this question as I link it to the Proud Boys, but I gather that you thought, or from listening and reading you, your writings, you thought that maybe that wasn't the, that it's not certain that those charges will stick on appeal. But with these seditious conspiracy charges, what do you think? If they're found guilty, they're more likely to stick and it's a, it's a more apt charge? These guys certainly did a whole lot more than the Oath Keepers did to cause the riot, to effectuate the riot. The Oath Keepers, it was sort of an afterthought, but it's, it is the same fundamental problem. Neither had a plan. So you have to buy that an overarching objective is sufficient. And I hope an appellate court buys that. I, I, I'm just not sure. Here, of course, they haven't been convicted yet. First, you have to get the jury to buy it. With the Oath Keepers, there was a strong sense of, are these guys just live-action role-playing? You know, they had a ton of guns over in Virginia, but, you know, these guys bring a ton of guns when they go to a Denny's. You know, yeah, they bring, yeah. you know, and, and, and allows a ton. There are a ton of guns. They, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's fine to have a ton of guns in a comfort inn in Virginia and, and, in, and in much of the country. So here they were much more crucial to what happened on the ground January 6th. I want to get to the Trump part of it because for both the prosecution and the defense, the specter of Donald Trump loomed. The prosecution thought that they could appeal or go far with the jury by saying, by describing these individuals as essentially Donald Trump's foot soldiers, whereas Enrique Tarrio's uh, defense attorney just put all the blame on Trump, that this was Trump, this wasn't my defendant. Which do you think is the better argument? And do either of those arguments hint at any possible prosecution of Trump if one carries the day over the other? Certainly, uh, Tario was very, very explicitly blaming Trump. And the argument went at 12.17 p.m., Trump says, fight like hell or you won't have a country anymore. And people begin streaming toward uh, the Capitol, and 36 minutes later, the barricades fall. Um, and uh, the, and as Biggs, uh, uh, some of the others went in that direction as well. There was actually a split among the uh, defendants uh, one of Pozzola's lawyers, he had two lawyers, and, and those two lawyers were not on the same page. One of his lawyers was trying to 
downplay the seriousness of January 6th, which was a terrible strategy before a D.C. jury. But Tario's strategy was a good one in front of a D.C. jury to say, yeah, there, this was a disgrace and Trump's responsible, but these guys are scapegoats. You know, I, I think it's a separate analysis for the government whether they're going to bring the charges against Trump. I don't think this will have an impact uh, on the prosecutors. But yeah, it was a big part of the case. For the prosecutors, the Proud Boys were, yes, the foot soldiers of the right. And uh, they viewed themselves that way. That's the government's claim. And as the tip of the spear, they did tie them to Trump, you know, through the debate, the September 29th debate, when Trump says, stand back and stand by. And and uh, and that's when the Proud Boys really feel like they're defending, uh, they, they need to defend their guy. Right. And the last thing I want to ask you about is the charge, obstruction of an official proceeding. Um, this is not the most serious charge, but maybe the jury, some jurors might agree to convicting on this charge as a compromise. But two things. One is one of the recommendations of the January 6th committee was that Trump be charged with obstruction of an official proceeding. But some courts have looked at that charge and said it doesn't apply in these circumstances. It was drafted after document destruction post Enron. So what can you tell us about what this trial might say and what the courts have been saying about the applicability of the obstruction against the obstruction of an official proceeding charge against Trump for January 6th. It's very true, I think, that this corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding, which has been the most important felony charge in January 6th cases, more than 308 people have been charged with it. More than 70 have been convicted of it. It's a terribly important charge. And if that goes to the Supreme Court, I think there's real concern that they might say, no, this doesn't apply. But it's very important why they say it it doesn't apply. And there are two different theories about why it might not. One of them, you're right, is, is this theory that well, maybe it only applies to document destruction. I don't think that, honestly, I don't think that one's going to fly. If it does, then not only the January 6th cases go out and Trump goes out. The other attack is on the, there's a, on the mental element called corruptly. And some people are saying, well, this really means you need to have a personal benefit. And a lot of the January 6th people do not have what, what most of us would call a personal benefit. It's not like they're not making money off this. They're not going into the Capitol to steal furniture. It's, it's sort of what they view in their minds as an altruistic subject, you know, to, to stop the steal. Interestingly enough, even if that's accepted and, and the January 6th cases go out, Trump would probably have a personal benefit because Trump is trying to maintain, he, he, he's trying to become president. It's hard to say that's not a personal benefit, especially when it's also a way of avoiding indictment, when it's a way of enriching yourself, you know, uh, uh, which is how he handled his presidency. So uh, I think there's a strong case, even if the corruptly element has to be personal benefit, Trump's still there. But I think as far as the January 6th people, it, it's a big danger. 
The Proud Boys trial is gone. 62 days. Roger Parloff has been there for all of them, and he awaits, as we all do, the verdict. Roger Parloff, senior editor at Lawfare, thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Really appreciate it. And now the spiel. In New York this week, a disciplinary trial is being held for two NYPD officers who were involved in the fatal shooting of a knife-wielding man. In 2019, the year of the incident, the Bronx DA decided not to press charges. But the family members of the man, Kowalski Trawick, demand at least the officers firing. This hearing is to see if the officers should in fact keep their jobs. The New York Times, by their framing of the story, seems to think not. Headline, officers face discipline in killing of man who wielded knife in own home. In his own home. Local coverage provided by WPIX Channel 11 echoes the sentiment. Four years after this man was shot and killed inside of his own apartment building, and the family will be here from Georgia today to see that justice in some form is served. The implication being, since a criminal conviction is off the table, at least the system can punish the officers disciplinarily. I'm not so sure, however. I've known about this case since it happened. I was intimately equated with the body camera footage and the arguments of family members and activists who echo the sentiments heard here of Trawick's mother, who was speaking to protesters outside the hearing. Kowalski was listening to music in his underwear, cooking in his home alone, where he should have been safe. Presumably, it was the actions of the police who made him unsafe. Well, perhaps, but perhaps not. So let's jump to the second-to-last paragraph of that New York Times 29-paragraph story of the killing of man who wielded knife in own home. Quote, Mr. Trawick rose to his feet, clutching the knife and the stick the body camera footage shows. He ran toward officers, screaming, get out, and I'm going to kill you all. Officer Thompson shot him. End quote. Let's go back to the beginning. Trawick either having a psychological episode or under the influence of drugs, in fact, toxicology report found methamphetamine in his system, was walking up and down the halls of his building, banging on doors with a four-foot-long stick while carrying a knife. According to his mother, Trawick had struggled with addiction and other mental health issues. Trawick was apparently locked out of his own apartment. He then went to the super's apartment and threatened to punch him in the face, which the super reported to police. Trawick then called 911 to falsely report a fire. If you don't hurry up, we're going to burn down. All right, 1616 Grand Avenue, what's the fire? Yeah. What's the fire emergency there? The building's on fire. When the emergency operator asked for additional information, Trawick got upset. Do you know what an emergency is? We do know what an emergency is, but in order for the fire department to respond to make sure that you're safe, we need to know an apartment number. We'll be dead, bitch! The fire department came and unhooked a latch that was keeping the door closed. Soon thereafter, the police, responding to reports of a knife-wielding man threatening people, were directed by building security to Trawick's door. Video shows them opening the door by pushing it. The officers were Herbert Davis, who had been on the force for 16 years, Davis is black, and Brendan Thompson, who had been on patrol for three years. It was Thompson who fired the fatal shots. Davis and Thompson, who had never fired their weapons in the line of duty prior to standing inside Kowalski Trawick's doorway, saw before them a shirtless man holding a staff and a knife. 
Thompson and Davis asked Trawick over and over again to drop the knife. Davis saying, please drop the knife. Drop the knife. Drop the knife. Drop the knife. Put the knife down. Put the knife down, please. Davis points a taser at Trawick's chest. The officers continue to ask Trawick to drop the knife. They are seven feet away. They are not entering the apartment. Trawick reacts to the taser pointer, the red laser pointer, by saying something that's unclear, but he's gesturing to his head. He's saying something, according to a later NYPD report, something like, just aim it right in the middle. They tase Trawick. The two officers then enter the apartment to handcuff the temporarily incapacitated Trawick, but he leaps to his feet. He's still holding the knife. The officers back into the hallway. Trawick rushes at them, screaming, I'm going to kill you, and you can hear what happened next. Trawick is killed immediately. After the incident, the journalism site ProPublica did a number of stories in which they claim the NYPD escalated the situation. It's in a series called the NYPD Files. Here's a headline. While the NYPD found no wrongdoing, ProPublica published footage showing it was the cops who escalated the situation. Here's another headline under the NYPD files. The NYPD said the killing of Kowalski Trawick, quote, appears to be justified. Video shows officers escalated the situation. Another headline. What police impunity looks like, there was no discipline as no wrongdoing was found. That's a quote from the official report. To understand why police are so rarely held accountable for killings, you should know about Kowalski Trawick and what didn't happen to the officer who shot him. Prosecution is what didn't happen. ProPublica talked to a retired NYPD officer who said Davis and Thompson could have just shut the door. They also cited as non-de-escalatory, in other words, escalatory behavior, the fact that the officers opened the door without permission when the resident expressed that they were not wanted. But some de-escalatory techniques were practiced. Davis tried to establish a rapport with Trawick. Davis said, please. The instructions were consistent. The tone, especially Thompson's, while firm, were not screaming, nor was the request confusing. It was also notable quite notable, in fact, that Davis, the African-American 16-year veteran, at one point, while Thompson was aiming his revolver at Trawick, pushed down his fellow officer's arm. Everything about Davis's behavior indicated he did not want this incident to unfold as it did. Thompson also, of course, didn't want this to happen, but he was the one who fired the taser and the gun. But the total circumstance was of an unwell man rushing at police with a knife in his hand after non-lethal interventions had been tried. 10 out of 10 times, that's going to provoke a defensive response. The two officers are not on trial for their freedom, just their jobs. Davis, the veteran, faces less serious disciplinary charges than his partner. But in New York, or the part of New York that cares and covers cases of police abuse, this case has become one to point to as improperly excessive. To me, it's more extremely regrettable, but also really difficult. A violent knife-wielding man issued threats. Others had called the cops. Staff and residents feared for their safety. Knowing what we know happened 
close the door is an effective solution if the task is to reverse or undo the horrible tragedy of the death of Kowalski Trawick. But never having responded to 9-11, that also undoes the tragedy, simply ignoring the cries for his neighbors for safety, that I, I suppose would undo the tragedy. If the issue is safety, the overall project of safety, I don't think that's a solution. And police accountability is the correct solution to police abuse. But presenting a story that's complex as being fairly simple, a simple injustice, that's not really a solution. So when I read or hear coverage of the man in his own home and police busting in and almost immediately shooting him, that sounds terrible. And it is terrible, but for reasons other than what those headlines would have us believe. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of personnel for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dupro, and thanks for listening.